Hello and welcome once again to Reason for Hope. A very happy new year. If we haven't had the opportunity to wish you that yet, we're very glad that you are joining us today. Reason for Hope, in case it's your first time, in case it's your New Year's resolution to to uh, join us. <laughs> it's an hour-long live broadcast, which is guided for the most part by your questions on the Bible. It's an opportunity for you to ask questions that you have about the Bible. What does the Bible say about this, that, and the other? How does the Bible speak into maybe even your life circumstances? You might be going through something and would like to know what the Bible says about it. You'd like to make a choice that would honor the Lord and I'm um, not quite sure what that is. Maybe even other worldviews, other religions, uh, how they relate to Christianity in the Bible, anything along those lines at all, as long as it's an honest question. We certainly appreciate honest questions, sincere questions, and as long as you know that the Bible is where we find the answers on the show, we want to give you as accurately as we possibly can with the Lord's help, um, a, a, a sincere answer from his word. So if you have questions, there's multiple ways you can send them in. I'll be going over those in just a moment. You can send your questions in live and we'll be glad to get to those today. My name's Dave Robson. It's great to be with you in this new year hosting for you today. I'll be with you on all those platforms as your questions come on in. Today we have Pastor Scott Richards and Pastor Sean Richards over here, father-son duo. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Yeah. You I'm the good? father, he's the son. As a, yeah. Keep, you're keeping score at It's home. hard to tell. It's hard to tell by the voices <laughs> if you're on the radio. That is true. <laughs> Sometimes. That is true. But that does give me plausible deniability. <laughs> that's right. me, he said it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Must have been something. I'm the scapegoat. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Did you guys have a good Christmas? And awesome. New Year? Did you yeah. stay up to see the new year in? My uh, cat didn't. What's that? My cat did. Your cat did. Your cat did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sleep on my leg. I, I have to admit, uh, did... Uh, Stay up uh, till like, I think it was nine o'clock uh, <laughs> on the Pacific Coast, and you can watch the live feed from CNN. Right during that time, uh, the the ball dropped as usual, and then uh, we were treated to uh, well a uh, series of displays of what we would call alternative lifestyles, celebrating the new year. And yeah, turn it off real quick. <laughs> Go to bed. Yeah, good night. <laughs> See you <laughs> next year. See ya. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen the, the London uh, fireworks where I'm from. Um, obviously, they do an amazing firework display on the Thames. You can watch it on YouTube, whatever. But I think it's like a couple of million pounds worth of fireworks. But it's I usually try and watch that. Pounds and how much it fact. costs, not Pound, pounds and how much it weighs. That's right, yeah. Or right, yeah. well, maybe about yeah, that yeah. many pounds yeah. too. But <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. But yes, Thank you, well, China. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, welcome once again in uh, 2024 now. I have to get used to calling it that, the new year. We're glad that you are with us. We're back to our normal schedule, Monday through Friday, uh, 5 to 6 p.m. here at Reason for Hope. We stream live. We're here in Tucson, Arizona. That's Mountain Standard Time. But, of course, you can join us all around uh, the world, wherever you are, through the wonders of the Internet. Um, but 5 to 6 p.m. here in Tucson, Arizona. It's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. So if you are looking for somewhere to worship and get in the Word, we're um, Calvary Chapel Affiliated Church. We teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Um, so if you'd like to come along and check us out, you're more than welcome. We're near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway, about a block uh, north from there, you can find us. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com is our website. You can get more information there. Um, that Watch Live tab on our website's a great place for you to watch us live, especially if you're someone that doesn't really use social media. Uh, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com and the Watch Live tab 
or you can type in ccftucson.online.church and that will take you to the same place. But we're streaming there right now. You can sign in with a username. And as I mentioned, you can send your question in. If you have a Bible question, send it in there. I'll be right there with you as your questions come on in. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show and a schedule of upcoming events um, as well, so you won't have to miss anything. If you're on Facebook, we're streaming live there as well, facebook.com slash ccftucson. Uh, you can send your question there in the chat function. Don't forget to like and share and all that good stuff. We'd appreciate that. Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook. We have a app for your mobile device as well. Once again, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Um, we have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well. So if you have those devices, go to your channel store and look for us and you can add us as, as a channel and watch us on your big screen as well. We're live on YouTube. Uh, a Reason for Hope is the name of the channel on YouTube. It's a great place for archives as well. Whenever we've been live, it will archive there under the live tab. So if you missed a show, and you'd like to catch up, you can go right there. We also upload questions of the week and other content as well. You can find our services there as well. Um, same as Facebook, our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship um, is a good place for archives as well. If you miss something or you want to check us out there. Pastor Scott here is on Twitter or X as it's called these days. Uh, Scott R4H is his handle. Scott letter, letter R number four letter h <laughs> that, that <laughs> my too. brain my brain always <laughs> yeah. struggles to what's a letter and what's a number um partially dyslexic over here but uh, scott alpha h on twitter i'm sure it's blowing up with everything going on in the world and in israel and the middle east so if you'd like to follow along um some commentary on all those things uh, you can follow pastor scott there we're on rumble as well not live on rumble but we post video content if you're using the rumble platform that's a kind of a newer platform a reason for hope bible q a you'll find us there and then you can email us your question as well we had a couple come in today that we've got in the lineup questions for hope at gmail.com questions for hope all spelled out at gmail.com you're welcome to email us there with your question as well we're on the radio as well reach radio and i think a few other radio affiliates but we're not live with you keep in mind that you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded um, so keep that email address in mind questions for hope at gmail.com and we can get to that question on our uh, next show um, and we also wanted to give you a heads up in a couple of weeks uh, we are having an event here uh, two weeks from friday understanding israel conference 2024 you recognize pastor scott there and also ronnie simone who is a tour guide from Israel going to be here. And uh, we have a video that we can, shape, we can show um, to give you some more information. Yeah, I think that picture of Ronnie was taken uh, probably about, oh, six or seven days into his typical tour when he's been herding cats and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a yeah. lot more friendly yeah. than he appears. <laughs> he is, he is, he's a very friendly, nice guy, but... Uh, yeah, he is a retired IDF colonel, so you can see he definitely has that gift of stink eye, if you will. That's right, he does. <laughs> He's but a great guy, and really looking forward to that. Yeah, so, so here's the video, the promo video, and then maybe Pastor Scott can say a few more words about what it's going to be. Let's see if I did this right. Here it comes. Hello folks, my name is Ronnie Simone. 
I'm an Israeli tour guide and historian who lives and works in Israel, and I would like to extend an invitation to all of you. Come and visit the country. Now, I know that it's not easy to buy a ticket and get on an airplane and fly over. Sometimes it's impossible due to the COVID pandemic, etc. So what I'm going to offer basically is a virtual tour. I'm going to take you on an eight days tour, just like a normal tour is in Israel. We're going to cover all the key locations. We're going to speak about all the key characters. We're going to immerse ourselves in understanding the ministry of Jesus and life around the Sea of Galilee. Of course, in Jerusalem, we're going to make a whole mix of ancient and modern, of antique and new. We're going to speak about 4,000 years of history from the days of Abraham all the way to the days of the state of Israel. And we're going to do that while visiting the most important places in the country. It's going to be an experience. It's going to be fun. Come with me. Enjoy the tour. have it and again uh two weeks from this friday uh ronnie will be with us um on uh, january 19th it's friday and saturday and uh you can still if we're still doing the same deal get the early bird special for 25 dollars per person and that ends on january 7th apparently so you can still jump on that if you would like to but yeah and yeah. people can sign up online correct that's right and uh where can they go to do that um calvarychristianfellowship.com you'll find information there click on the link and you can sign up there yeah uh you know you've probably heard the expression before next best thing to being there it really is uh, ronnie just does a tremendous job the the graphics are in the displays are first rate uh i'll be speaking uh, a bit on friday night uh we've added two sessions one is uh i'm going to be sharing about a biblical perspective on israel uh, from the New Testament, what is a New Testament believer's perspective to be on the nation of Israel? And, uh, you know, surprisingly, uh, that's a lot more controversial these days than it certainly used to be. Uh, and uh, we want you to be fully informed on that. I think it's going to be an eye-opener for you. I did my master's thesis on Romans 9 through 11. We're going to be focusing in on Romans chapter 11, which not only tells us how we are to relate to the Jewish people in the here and now, but also the plans that God has for them in the future. So it'll be an exciting Bible study for you. And then Ronnie is going to uh, use his background uh, and uh, his expertise to give us an overview about what is happening in the Middle East. So, uh, you know, we give you prophecy updates each and every day on this uh, broadcast, uh, nearly each and every day, because there's so much going on. Uh, Ronnie really has tremendous insight, especially from his background as an IDF colonel. Uh, I remember when Sean and I were getting ready to uh, go into uh, Petra, uh, into the country of Jordan. Ronnie left us at the border, and I said, well, why can't you come with us? He goes, well, I've been to Jordan before, and I'm not sure they would welcome me back. And he smiled. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, so uh, you can fill in the blanks on that. Uh, the man has serious experience in uh, military affairs in the Middle East and can give us that perspective. So we're very, very excited about having Ronnie here. And we hope that uh, you all will jump on in. As they say, space is limited. Yep. So uh, don't, 
don't uh, be on the outside looking in, uh, jump on our uh, internet uh, website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and uh, sign up and uh, make sure that your seat is reserved. Excellent. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's come up quick with the, uh, obviously, with all the Christmas excitement, and now we're in January. It's like, oh, it's in a couple of weeks now. So we are yeah. certainly looking forward to that. But yeah. yeah, we're going to have fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we pause to pray before we go any further? Sean, would you like to pray today? That'd be great. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well. Speak your word in spirit and in truth and allow those listening to receive it from the heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Amen. 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 Well, speaking of Israel. Yeah, boy, just a lot of things going on here. We just want to give you a bit of an overview. If you'd like to explore a little bit more of this, we'll be here all week. Same time, same uh, bat channel. Uh, to be able <laughs> tip to, your waitress. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, to be able to, uh, to know what's going on. But the, the big events here... Uh, as we say, Israel is the straw that stirs the drink as far as uh, the plans that God has for righting this world gone wrong, for the return of Jesus Christ. And uh, we make no bones about the fact that uh, when uh, the, we talk about Israel, things are going to get uh, pretty challenging before they get better. And challenging, I think, is an understatement. Uh, to bring you up to speed about what's going on in the conflict in the Middle East, things have branched out quite a bit. Uh, with not just uh, the events happening in Gaza taking place, but uh, some crucial events happening in Lebanon and Iran. Uh, real briefly, uh, Israel assassinated a fellow by the name of Salah al-Aruri, uh, who was the mastermind behind the Hamas operation on October 7th. He is also the main link between Hamas and uh, the uh, Mad Mullahs in Iran. Uh, he was originally from the West Bank, had been expelled from Israel years ago, but uh, he is probably the single most important person as far as leadership in Hamas outside of Gaza and had been meeting with Hassan Nasrallah, who is the head of the Hezbollah terrorist group uh, that basically dominates uh, Lebanon. Uh, Israel took him out in a targeted uh, military strike. And uh, again, uh, this guy has been on uh, the terrorist uh, watch list for quite some time. Our own State Department put out a reward for uh, of up to uh, $5 million for information that would lead to the arrest and or capture of uh, Salah al-Ariri. Uh, he is uh, no longer uh, here. He has uh, found out that his faith in uh, the teachings of the 7th century warlord uh, certainly did not uh, help him beyond this life. Uh, so uh, a number of uh, key aides uh, to Ariri were killed in that particular strike. Uh, but wait, uh, there's more. Uh, you know, when we, uh, we say that uh, Israel uh, is, is expanding its operations, certainly this was an example of this. And uh, our good friend uh, uh, Amir Sarfati uh, reminds us that after the 1972 Munich massacre at the Summer Olympic Games, uh, Prime Minister Golda Meir instructed the Mossad to eliminate all of the terror group members from Black September that conducted that operation. Uh, and every single one of them ended up being taken out. The operation was called the Wrath of God. And uh, certainly not a single one of them died peacefully uh, in their sleep. Well, after the October 7th massacre, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in, instructed the Mossad to eliminate all of the Hamas terror group members, uh, particularly their leadership. Uh, nobody has given a name to this operation 
as of yet, at least one that they're divulging to the public, uh, but it does appear to be in full swing. Having said that, uh, earlier today there was uh, a, uh, a very tragic uh, set of circumstances that took place in Tehran. Uh, Muslims love anniversaries, uh, particularly radical Muslims, and uh, earlier today was the fourth anniversary of uh, the assassination of Qasim Soleimani, who served from 1998 to 2020 as commander of the Quds Force. By the way, the term Quds uh, refers to Jerusalem. That is their goal to retake Jerusalem because once Muslims have controlled an area, it's considered an affront to Allah for anybody else to be in control of that area. And so they've named uh, their special forces, uh, their creme de la creme of their, uh, their uh, military, the Quds Force. As a result of that, uh, Qasim Soleimani was responsible for the uh, conduct of the Iranian Re Revolutionary Guards outside of Iran's borders. Well, on January 3rd, 2020, a uh, U.S. drone strike took out Soleimani and those riding with him while in a convoy uh, near the airport in uh, Baghdad. Uh, well, they were celebrating uh, or commemorating Qasim Soleimani's uh, martyrdom, as they would call it, in a place called the Kerman Cemetery of the Martyrs in Tehran when two suitcase bombs exploded uh, in that particular venue. Over 211 people are now reported dead, and probably the casualty uh, list is going to uh, increase. Uh, the uh, Israeli government uh, has uh, categorically denied having anything to do with this, and uh, the United States, through its intelligence services, has uh, backed up Israel's claim not to have been a part of this particular attack. So who did it? Well, the uh, latest speculation uh, points to a very interesting phenomenon. You need to understand if you understand anything that's going on in the Middle East. Apparently, the uh, leading suspects of this bombing attack uh, are uh, our good friends from ISIS. I say that sarcastically. Uh, they are still operational. They still uh, create uh, their sense of uh, terror around the world. And when they aren't attacking Israel, uh, one of the things you need to understand is ISIS represents Shiite Islam or Sunni Islam. Uh, the Mad Mullahs in Tehran represent Sunni Islam, Shia. and and I could uh, Shia uh, Islam. Yeah, Shia Islam, and uh, I could uh, throw this over to my right hand man, protege, and all around good guy and resident uh, expert on all things uh, Islamic. At least he's done a lot of study on it. Uh, how do Shias and Sunnis feel about each other? They are deemed one to the other as hypocrites, which are just as much under a death penalty as kafir or non-believers. Okay, so uh, that's kind of where ISIS comes in. Uh, apparently, they uh, would like to see the mad mullahs in Tehran thrown out of power. Uh, there are also those who uh, believe that there are some secularist groups operating in Iran that could also have something to do with all of this. But uh, suffice it to say... Uh, the pictures that we've seen coming out of there are just incredibly tragic. There are children that have died uh, in this uh, particular attack. Uh, obviously, the usual suspects are running to uh, British papers like The Guardian. Uh, a uh, Kerman district representative accused Israeli agents of carrying out the attack on Soleimani's tomb. Uh, the first elected official to make 
that attribution. The United States intelligence services, as we mentioned, speculate that ISIS or a related group is responsible for these particular attacks. Now, what would they get out of that? Well, first of all, no love lost between Sunnis and Shias uh, in Islam. The other thing is uh, a group like this thrives on chaos. Uh, one of the great ways for them to regroup and reassert themselves is to uh, make sure that as much turmoil and uh, upheaval is going on in the Middle East as possible. And so uh, once again, we've seen this conflict uh, beginning to expand. Uh, it does uh, appear that down to the south, uh, the, the Houthi rebels are continuing to do their thing, firing again today at a, uh, a ship that was heading for Singapore, of all places. It had nothing to do with Israel, but uh, landing three different attacks on all of this. Uh, a statement was made by 12 countries, including the United States, that the Houthis are going to bear the consequences if they continue to threaten the global economy, and threaten it they have. 15% of all shipping goes through this particular gulf that separates the Indian Ocean from the Red Sea leading up to the Suez Canal and so on. Uh, how does that affect people like you and me? Well, if you think inflation's bad now, wait till you see the markups that are going to happen as a result of having to redirect all shipping away from this shortest distance between two points from manufacturers and so on in South Asia, uh, all the way either around the, the uh, Cape of Africa, the Southern Cape, and then back up uh, through the Panama Canal and so on. Uh, if uh, you think prices are bad now, mm. probably we're going to start feeling this in roughly a couple of weeks. Uh, but uh, when you go to Walmart, uh, when you go to wherever you do your shopping, uh, you're going to see it. Uh, and uh, mm. the United States uh, has uh, responded by uh, sending the Houthi rebels a strongly worded letter of protest, which I'm sure makes a great Huge deal yeah. of uh, impact uh, upon uh, these rogues and pirates. But uh, boy, uh, things heating up on so uh, many levels. Uh, again, Israel uh, has uh, just before airtime uh, conducted another attack in southern Lebanon against Hezbollah, a senior Hezbollah commander in that area named Hussein Yazbek was killed along with two of his companions. Uh, and you know these things go one side attacks and the other side has to save face and so it starts going. Um, our good friend Amir Sarfati was talking about uh, never seeing so many Israeli uh, fighter jets uh, scrambled at any one particular time in the, uh, the goings on of this conflict. So pray for Israel, pray uh, for the peace of God's people uh, in that region, pray uh, that, uh, you know, Bo Ouellette and I were having the conversation before uh, we went on the air about Psalm 83 and how Psalm 83 talks about Israel being attacked by a semicircle of nations uh, that basically represent uh, those uh, countries dominated by Islam in the last days. Uh, but the most interesting thing about Psalm 83, and I'd encourage you to read it because it sounds like it's just taken out of today's newspaper, uh, but one of the most interesting things about Psalm 83 is it talks about how the forces of uh, Islam, uh, and I don't think I'm making a huge interpretive leap in saying that this is what's represented here, are not only going to be defeated, but they're going to be defeated in such a way that they're going to know who the true and living God is. Uh, in other words, there's going to be a mass turning of Muslims to God after the uh, conclusion of this divine 
intervention that's going to take place. So pray uh, that that would happen for uh, the Arab people uh, in that area. You know, I don't even like to use the word Palestinian because it's a made-up word. We were talking, Sean and I were talking about that earlier, uh, where it was uh, put together as a propaganda ploy, and even uh, Arabs themselves, Palestinians, will admit that uh, they're just basically Arabs. They are Egyptians, they are Jordanians, they are Syrians, uh, but there has never been a Palestinian Arab people. They are just this conglomeration of people from other places. Hmm. So uh, again, you'd like to talk about that, getting more clarity on that. Sean will be happy to fill you in on some of the research that he has done. We'll be uh, uploading a series of videos to our website as well, Why We Stand with Israel. It'll discover the biblical perspective, which we did two Wednesdays ago. We'll be discussing the uh, current events perspective, kind of a summation of the prophecy updates and why the accusations being made against Israel are actually the shoe being on the other foot for Hamas and not true (laughs) for the most part. Uh, The third will be regarding the history of Palestine proper, where we'll go into those quotes in detail where they themselves even take today are bragging about the fact that we're buying this garbage. Uh, the fourth will be the Islamic motivations taken chapter and verse from the Quran and Sunnah as to why this war is going to continue in perpetuity until they either find a new god or they find out he's not there to begin with. And then, of course, answering some of the common objections to Israel's right to defend itself, which you'd think would be a two-second video, but it's not. So, so that's all there for you. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, thank you for keeping us up to date yeah. with well, all let's, those things. With, with all that said, let's launch into the questions. Yeah, we've got some good questions. <laughs> yeah. Come on in. We appreciate uh, that. The, the, you viewers, send us your question. We have a question from Chris. <clears throat> it's got lots of long words, so I'm going to do my best here. Throughout my Christian life, Chris says, I was taught a dispensationalist view of end times. As of late, I have been curious to know why some Christians hold other views. Yesterday, I ran across a criticism of dispensationalism that gave me pause. A pastor on YouTube stated that he could not accept the dispensationalist view because, according to him, they believe that God will uh, allow Israel to reinitiate animal sacrifice in the rebuilt temple during the millennial period Mm -hmm. or the kingdom of God as he called it. Now I was taught that these sacrifices he was referring to will indeed occur during the great tribulation not during Christ's millennial rule. So the first Mm -hmm. question is the the pastor's claim correct? Second question does this pastor accept amillennialism, postmillennialism, historical premillennialism? Uh, I'm not sure millennialism is the the real issue there. Saying that this was these uh, sacrifices in Ezekiel were going to take place during the tribulation period, um, certainly not uh, the kind of sacrifices that will take place during that time. Uh, the temple will be rebuilt and sacrifices will be offered. But, but the, for what purpose? The uh, the main distinction that we find, especially in uh, the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 45, we're going to be going through that verse by verse tonight at 6.30 if you want to tune in and get more uh, up close and personal with it all. But uh, the interesting thing is uh, it talks about uh, the reinstitution of sacrifices, but it also talks about a revamped uh, festival of feasts, if you will, that are going to be taking place, that are going to be conducted by an individual called the prince. Well, we discover in Ezekiel chapter 37 that the prince is a resurrected King David. Uh, he is specifically uh, targeted as such. Some will say, well, but that could just mean, you know, that a very godly guy is, is leading all of this. 
Well, no, in that uh, the, uh, the sacrifices will be offered, but the people doing the sacrifices will be doing them for the wrong reasons. They will be doing them in order to try to expiate or to take away sin. Uh, the sacrifice that we find uh, in the book of Ezekiel, uh, in the rebuilt temple that are going on there, very different from the sacrifices that are prescribed by the laws of Moses, even the, the festivals and feasts, uh, especially noted by their absence. Our two festivals, the Feast of Pentecost, is never mentioned as being conducted during this time. And the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is not mentioned as taking place during this particular time frame. So if you're going to have rabbinic Judaism being practiced in a rebuilt temple in the tribulation period, especially one that is facilitated by a peace agreement the Antichrist will conduct with many nations, according to Daniel chapter 9, uh, you're going to have all of those features. You're going to have all of those festivals. You're going to have all of those sacrifices going on because without doing so, you don't have rabbinic Judaism taking place. However, when the prince, that is David, is overseeing things, he is going to offer sacrifices. Well, once again, this prince, this Davidic prince, this prince, even if you concede, well, maybe he's just from the line of David. Uh, according to rabbinic Judaism, no Davidic prince from the tribe of Judah could offer a sacrifice. One tried, and it didn't work. <laughs> only, yeah, exactly. He ended up with uh, dying of leprosy in isolation. So, uh, King in, Uzziah, if you want to look at yeah. it. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, once again, I, I would just say one of the reasons we take a premillennial, pre-tribulational view of the last days and the end times is not because we're wedded to it, uh, but because it lays out the prophetic picture in the closest possible harmony with a grammatical, literal interpretation of Scripture. If the Scripture says that King David is going to be this prince over Israel, David was never called a prince in his entire life, uh, as far as his, uh, his first uh, arrival here, but a resurrected David will. Uh, as we read, been, will be true of all the Old Testament saints in Revelation 20. Yeah, so once again, we see uh, that the closest way of, of solving all the problems, making all the pieces fit, doing the Rubik's Cube, if you will, of prophecy, is this premillennial, pre-tribulational view of what's going on. So, uh, you know, as far as the sacrifices are concerned, again, you can get uh, go online and, and look up uh, our studies of uh, Ezekiel chapters 40, uh, we're into 45 tonight, and uh, we do touch base quite a bit on this, this subject. The sacrifices that are going to take place in the thousand-year reign of Christ, and Jesus is going to be there. Uh, we're going to see some really important scriptures that indicate that the Davidic prince is like the prime minister, but the main attraction is going to be the Lord is there. Last line of the book of Ezekiel, they're going to call Jerusalem its new name. The Lord is there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, which Lord? Well, once again, we see in passages like Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 8, we'll talk a little bit about this tonight, uh, people from all over the world are going to say, come and let us go under the mountain of the Lord to the city of our God. He shall teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. In other words, people will be able to hear Jesus himself teach them 
his ways when they make these uh, pilgrim trips, if you will, uh, to a uh, reconstituted, redesigned, even revamped geographically uh, situation called uh, Jerusalem and the, uh, the holy place. And uh, it, the sacrifices being made there are never presented as ones that will take away sin, but they are remembrances of the sacrifice that does take away sin. Jesus, when he died on the cross, said it is finished. Uh, there is one sacrifice that's been made for sin once and for all, we're told in Hebrews chapters 8 and chapters 9, no doubt about that. But in the same way that we look back in time to Jesus' death on our behalf every time we celebrate communion, we don't do that in order for Jesus to be sacrificed again. We do that to remember. Remember, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And Paul adds this important detail in 1 Corinthians. He says, for as often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, in in other words, <coughs> communion, as we understand it, is going to be done away with during that thousand-year reign of Christ. It's going to be supplanted, if you will, by these temple sacrifices, which will do the exact same thing. They will point back in time to what Jesus did and his sacrifice for our sins on the cross. Anything you can add to that? Yeah, the question about the different views of end times. Uh, understand that this is a negotiable issue, but it can be somewhat of a, I won't say to use your uh, British term, uh, red flagging it, but kind of a yellow card, if you will, might get put you under further scrutiny if this is going to be your way of approaching Scripture. Uh, there's four main views of how people approach the end times, none of which invalidate you for salvation. Most people today would take the pan-trib position, it'll all pan out in the end, and that's just sort of a neutral, keeping myself distant from the whole topic. And the advantage to that, obviously, are you can get conversations off of things you haven't studied and onto things that you actually do, hopefully like the gospel. But the problem with that, the weakness of it, is there's a reason those prophecies are in Scripture, and to willfully neglect not just a portion of Scripture, a full third <laughs> of the Bible is dedicated to a very to a very uh, sensitive topic, and if for us to adopt the mindset of shying away from biblical truth to avoid upsetting people, well, there's only going to be a matter of time before you find out the gospel upsets people, too. So understand that. The real main schools in studying this, and the ones that are actually taking the topic seriously, those who study prophecy and the schools that claim those names, uh, the first and fortunately the most rare is what's called idealism or symbolism. It's that all prophecies are allegories. They're all symbolic. They are not to be taken literally. These are all just generic things speaking of good and evil, and so you just need to keep that, you know, at at a distance. People who would purposefully study prophecy to distance themselves from it, that's the idea behind that there. Well, you know, Revelation, it's so symbolic and unknowable, who could possibly interpret it? That's the idealist point of view. The second is what's unfortunately very popular on the internet, and that is preterism, the idea of fulfillment, that's what preterist means, uh, and usually associated with 
like the caller was saying, post-millennialism, meaning that we're after the millennium, or amillennialism, that there is no millennium whatsoever. Mm. The preterist view largely uses Matthew 24, to their credit, as a framework for the I guess, events of the end times, and in so doing, uses it as an authority over Revelation or other passages, especially in the Old Testament, in how they would interpret how events are going to pan out, that Jesus wasn't summarizing events, he wasn't going in a, you know, back-and-forth order, so to speak, based on context, he was just laying it out as it would. He would approach it the same way that premillennialists would approach Revelation. So the preterist would then say, and this is usually what accompanies it, that the entirety of Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now that the church has come, that is the allegorical nature of the millennium, and that, of course, the judgment that was leveled on nation the nation of Israel proper is now only available to Jews and Gentiles through the church, and that's what was meant by the millennium. All of the promises of the Old Testament are either allegorical or were fulfilled in some way in the past, or poetic, usually, mm-hmm. and you see how these two tend to blend together in dismissing prophecy because of a presupposition, <laughs> usually anti-Semitism, or at least loyalty to your tribe, which of course the majority of those in the Reformed camp would subscribe to. So be sensitive to that. That is a particular view that's getting a lot of traction on the internet. The third is what's called historicism or historic millennialism, the view that these things have happened in history, not just in the sense of preterism, but that the specific events of Revelation were actually fulfilled historically, not at the destruction of Jerusalem, but they'd, you know, pick and choose, say World War II was the final falling out in the Battle of Armageddon in the United States, Revolutionary War, that was, you know, the New Jerusalem and whatever, all these things would point to basically a past perspective newspaper eschatology. They'd say that was the fulfillment, and that was the fulfillment, and that was the fulfillment. Mm. Not looking at things today, but saying, well, the the Black Plague, you know, why why wouldn't that be a third of the world's population? It wasn't the world, it was Europe, but don't let that stop you. That's the (laughs) point of this, the idea of looking to all these historical events and saying that was fulfilled in the past as well. Then finally, the futurist position, the view that all of these things are going to pan out exactly as how they're represented in the text, regardless of how controversial that may be. We still expect a literal rapture, a literal antichrist, a literal millennium, and a literal thousand-year reign. So if that's going to be the case in the future, that's our expectation. And then there's various schools like uh, Christian Zionism, the specific emphasis and focus on Israel as the future intent of God's plans that falls into dispensationalism. And I'll finish with this. Dispensationalism is the view that God is reaching out to the world through the gospel, but through various groups and ways. The first dispensation was through Adam, those who directly knew God face to face, and his sons. Then during the time of Abraham, it was through him and his descendants. Mm -hmm. Then it was through the church. Then it will be through the Jews again. Then it will be through Israel and the Messiah proper during the millennium. All these things are putting that forward. Now, every view has their strengths, and every view has their weaknesses, but when it ultimately comes down to it, understand what disqualifies somebody as a Christian is not their view of the end times. It's their affirmation of 
or denial of four fundamental truths. First, is Jesus God? As he revealed himself in history to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that true or is that false? Second, God has revealed himself in as a trinity. This unique way of God's revelation of his nature is certainly above our pay grade as human beings, but clearly recognized in scripture. To discard or deny that is to worship a different God. Third, that salvation by grace through faith alone is how we're getting to heaven. Anything more or less than the completed work and revelation of Jesus Christ is our hope, period. Anything beyond that and you're inventing a new religion. And fourth, the Bible is our sole authority, infallible, inerrant, preserved, and of course, as I said, authoritative for the Christian life. People who go to or try to add to the authority of Scripture in order to interpret what God has revealed to us are barking up the wrong tree. So if you affirm those four things, then I hope, especially with that fourth view in mind, your view of end times will eventually sort themselves out. I have every confidence in the Holy Spirit's ability to lead us into all truth as brothers and sisters in Christ, but the problem is that many people, especially in our day and age, and we're no exception, will hold more loyalty to our community and tribe rather than the plain meaning of the text, and we need to be sensitive to that, even in Calvary Chapel circles. Don't believe there's a rapture because Chuck Smith said it. Don't believe that 70 AD was the fulfillment of the book of Revelation because some Calvinist that you respect on the internet says it. Don't believe something because it's a part of your group, or that's just what we think here. Take the time to let the Spirit lead you into these things. If it's not an area where your heart's focused on, then by all means focus on that. But make sure that you're not, first of all, priding yourself in the neglect of God's Word, and secondly, not, uh, well, as Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, uh, beating your fellow servants, saying, my master delays his coming. Hint, hint. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you, Chris. And it sounds like you're, you're doing that. You're questioning even something that you always uh, were taught. So good on you for that in uh, your studies and growing along with the rest of us, you yeah. know, asking those questions. Yeah. So just, thank you. Just Hope that helps you out. A uh, question from Dwayne. Uh, what's your opinion on people saying that the beast is coming this year, or do we know when indeed these things are going to happen? Well, my Lord. opinion is, you know, again, I think any question that gets us thinking about the return of Jesus is a great question, Dwayne. But sometimes we can ask the wrong question. Uh, there's all kinds of people that, uh, well, in a sense, take a wrong turn uh, by focusing in on what we call newspaper eschatology. Uh, that is, they take a look at uh, what's going on in this world right now, and they say, well, because of this and this and this, I think this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And, and newspaper eschatology really goes to seed whenever the subject of the identity of the Antichrist uh, comes up. And, and there's a reason that we say this. Uh, in uh, the book of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, we are told that uh, the one who restrains will do so until he is taken out of way, and then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. In other words, there is a restraining work of the Holy Spirit that is going on in this world right now, Chris, that, uh, that is keeping the Antichrist from manifesting himself as such. Could the Antichrist be alive today? Uh, certainly. Could he be involved with world politics today? It could happen. Uh, you know, the old saw about the uh, only time you know when a politician's line is when their lips are moving. I mean, you could 
the man of sin and lawlessness and lies, he'd fit right on in. But the, the, the bottom line, though, is the Antichrist cannot reveal himself as such until that special restraining work of the Holy Spirit is taken away. Well, what is that restraining work? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, speaking of us as his people, said, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. Well, light keeps darkness at bay. Salt is an important preservative that keeps things from rotting out. As long as the church, God's people, the Holy Spirit indwelling us as his people is here, we might feel like we aren't making much of a difference in this world sometimes, but we are. Uh, the Holy Spirit is using us to keep the Antichrist from being at bay. Uh, you know, things uh, are bad in this world, but not as bad as they could be, believe it or not. Uh, and as long as the church is there, and as long as God is still giving us the grace to reach out to people with the gospel, we're going to continue to be in that, that tool that God uses, in the power of the Holy Spirit to keep the Antichrist from showing up. Once we are taken out of the way at the rapture, however, Katie, bar the door. Uh, there's going to be nothing to restrain lawlessness, and the man of sin will be able to reveal himself with all signs and lying wonders to deceive those who didn't receive the love of the truth in order to be saved. Uh, and, and so do we see, Chris, things being set up, the skids being greased for the rise of, of the beast, the Antichrist? Sure, I, I think we do. Uh, the idea of a one-world government, uh, the idea of uh, instantaneous communication, all these different things that in the hands of uh, an unscrupulous, satanically energized authoritarian could dominate the world. Sure, I, I think we see a lot of those things. But Jesus gave us some great advice. He said, when you see these things begin to happen, what things? Well, most importantly, a prophecy that we know has been fulfilled in our day and age. Israel's back in the land again. When you see these things begin to happen, look up, Jesus said, for your salvation draws near. Now, we are to be looking for the return of Jesus Christ. He, it could happen at any time. Uh, we're not to be looking for the Antichrist. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaches that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. I, I love that particular passage because it tells me something. I should live each day as if Jesus could come before the end of it. Uh, and if I love Jesus, and I do, uh, nothing would bring me greater joy than to see him face to face. Mm -hmm. And if I have that joy then the joy of the Lord is my strength, Nehemiah tells us. And, and if I have that anticipation, well, I'm not going to be dabbling in stuff and saying, well, how far away from God can I get and still be in? I'm going to want to embrace my relationship with God. I want to walk my talk. I want to live my life in a way that pleases God. And I want to care enough about people that when the Lord gives me divine opportunities to be able to share his good news with people inside or outside the church, I want to take full advantage of that. I want to tell people how they can know Jesus too. Uh, so, you know, again, it's a no-lose proposition. We say this a lot, but it bears repeating. Uh, if Jesus doesn't come for 200 years, and I live each day as if he could come at the end of it, uh, won't I, uh, you know, be disappointed? No, not at all. Uh, because, uh, again, when you get to be my age, I figure I've got, what, 30 years left on this planet before I go through the valley of the shadow of death and 
come to Jesus anyway. Within 30 years, he's either coming for me or I'm going to him. Uh, and boy, let me tell you something. Uh, the last 30 years have gone by like that. So mm -hmm. might as well live like Jesus could come at any moment. So don't focus on who could be the Antichrist. I've been around long enough to hear that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist and Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist and uh, Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist, Ronald Wilson Reagan. All three of his names have six letters. He's not, right? And people sold a lot of books and got people all hyped trying to guess who the Antichrist was. I heard someone say Prince Charles was the Antichrist recently. Yeah, I, I think uh, the Antichrist is going to be a little more suave and sophisticated than <laughs> Prince Charles. How dare you? A little charismatic. <laughs> more charismatic. I've even heard people yeah. seriously suggest the Antichrist is going to be French. <laughs> Yikes! No, we're, we're having fun here. Yeah, if you're yeah. listening and you're French, I'm sorry, not for what I said, but the fact you're French. Continue. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, boy. Wait, I thought Dave was supposed to do the French jokes. It's yeah. yeah. No, I'm keeping my mouth shut. Okay. Yeah, wise man. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Let's move on. We've got a few more questions here. The time While is we're still running in away, as usual. Um, <laughs> thank you, Dwayne, for that question. Hope that helps you out. Question from Casey. Uh, great question here. Good evening, pastors. Would you please explain the role of each member of the Trinity at creation? I see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, but what exactly does that mean? The Bible uh -huh. recap commentary explains it as God the Father gave the creation command. God the Son did the manual labor in creating things in response to the Father's command, and the Holy Spirit sustained and approved it. But no other scripture references were given in the recap except to say it was in the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds okay. like the kind of thing. It's in the Bible. Yeah. Um, so the role of the Trinity in creation from the very beginning. Yeah, whenever it comes to anything Trinitarian, make sure that your explanations and descriptions start and end with Scripture, otherwise you inevitably descend into heresy. Uh, first of all, when it, we start with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's a fundamental proof statement for the doctrine of the Trinity, because if something claims to be creator, and of course they are um, identified by a certain title yet distinguished from someone else, then they're either God or they're lying. So when it comes to the definition of the Trinity, I'll be brief with this, it's four fundamental facts. First of all, that there's one and only one God. If we had three gods running around, then of course that would be an easy explanation. We wouldn't need a new word for it. We believe we are monotheists, that there is only one entity out there worthy of being called G-O-D, the entity with power. The second is that there are certain things only God can do, creation being one of them. And we also believe that there are three entities that are credited for creation, centers of consciousness, persons, take of it what you will. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all in various ways credited, not just with parts of creation or a role in creation, but the entirety of creation. And we'll get into actual Bible examples of that here in a moment. The fourth is that, of course, the Father, Son, and Spirit are recognized as that one God, and at the same time able to function independently from one another. We're not modalists. We don't believe that God is sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Spirit. Otherwise, Isaiah 48, 16 and Mark 1, verse 9 end up being nonsensical, and those are just two examples. When it comes to this doctrine, though, understand that in the fundamental nature of the Trinity, we believe that every member of the Trinity had a complete role in all of creation. Uh, Genesis 1 3, noting that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, then the Lord said, let there be light. 
that was using a language tool that was describing the same way that a mother hen would be brooding over its chick. So there was a work of sustaining creation. And if we jump to Revelation chapter 4, we note that God directly is credited and saying that you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So past, present, and future, God's credited with the fact that these things are there. They're speaking to the throne, which in the next chapter, Revelation 5, is distinguished from the Lamb and the sevenfold lampstand. So the Father is being credited for that. The second issue, when people are looking at the roles of the Trinity in nature, or in creation, there are unique ways that the Trinity is involved in things, like our salvation. The Son doesn't indwell us bodily, the Spirit does. The Father didn't die on the cross, the Son did, so on and so forth. But when it comes to creation, let's just stick to the text. In Isaiah 64 and verse 8, this is, uh, of course, the prophet Isaiah speaking. This is where the term Father comes up, by the way. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. So it's describing everyone in Israel as God's creation and recognizes that as the source of life as Father. Likewise, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 3, the one who was in the beginning, described as the Word, was with God, was God, and note this, all things were made through him, and without him, not was anything that was made, made. So that's probably where the Bible recap had the idea of the Son being a more hands-on creator. Colossians 1.15 gives it a more general view. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. But then we go to the book of Job. In verse 33 and verse 4, Job rightly states, The Spirit of God has made me. And the breath, literally ruach, same word for spirit, gives me life. If the Son was the life giver, the sustainer, the creator, the Spirit is the sustainer, the life giver, the creator, the Father was the life giver, the Spirit, the creator, you get the point. It is repeated throughout the scriptures. So when it comes to a proper understanding of each member of the Trinity's roles in creation, like I said, I'll finish where I started, make sure that your answers start and end with Scripture. And if a recap comes along, look up any overgeneralization. Because while I see where they're coming from, it's not entirely accurate. Mm. When we describe who is creator, we're not describing, well, the Father played this part, the Son played this part, the Spirit played this part. We're not told the specifics. We can infer certain things, but it's the same thing with salvation in a sense, who is our Savior, the Father, the Son, or the Spirit? Well, it was the Father's purpose, it was the Son's work, and it is the Spirit's role to keep us saved, right? But God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is our Savior. Who is Creator? Father, Son, or Spirit? The answer is yes. <laughs> but in what way? We're not told. What we can know is what is revealed to us, and I think that we can stick to that. Very good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we can fit Another one, at least, a question from Bob. Is it inappropriate for a born-again Christian to address other Christians as brethren if he or she is not Hebrew? Are we brothers? Um, goal of effective communication is making sure both people understand what you mean. If they understand what you mean by that, then it's not inappropriate. The reason why we call ourselves brethren in the Lord is because we share a spiritual father, not... Uh, 
uh, biological lineage back to Father Abraham. But if, on the other hand, you're talking to someone who's you know new to the church and's kind of creeped out with the whole scene in Christian lingo, just be sensitive to who you're talking to, and I think it's fine. Just mm-hmm. recognize that's where the general idea, especially in the ancient world, people thought that Christians were incestuous because they referred to each other as siblings. That was a new concept. And, of course, what they meant by that wasn't that they were all related. It was because they all shared a spiritual relationship with the same father, thus they were all the same children. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what you have to clarify. Mm. Great. Well, you want to speed to another question? Sure. A <laughs> uh, question from Dwayne. Uh, hello, I have a question. How far is too far when it comes to punishing kids? In a minute. Depends. If they're uh, teenagers, then yeah. go as far as you want though. Well, I think uh, we need to follow God's example. Uh, we're told in Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor let your heart detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father the son, in whom his heart delights. Uh, if we discipline our kids in anger, we've missed it. Uh, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. If we discipline our kids because we feel guilty about things we've done in the past and that reminds us of that, that then we've missed it. But if we discipline our kids according to the need for discipline, uh, according to uh, loving communication and reaffirming our love for them, letting them know why they're being punished uh, and corrected, then uh, we learn to minister to our kids the way God ministers to us. Um, Anything that goes beyond that is too far. Great. Wow. You guys are good. Right here on the end of our show. (laughs) Reminder, we go live again in in half an hour, 6.30 p.m. We go live with the book of Ezekiel. We're teaching through Ezekiel. Say we. Pastor Scott over here is... On Wednesday night. So You're going to be singing. I'll be singing. Yeah. I'll be singing. Yeah. Not at the same time as he's teaching, but <laughs> join us online or come on down if you're in the Tucson, Arizona area, Calvary Christian Fellowship. If not, we'll see you again tomorrow, same time, same place. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.